what a wonderful promise, what a wonderful confidence we have that in the face of all difficulties, in the face of all troubles, the Lord will provide all we need physically. He'll provide what we need emotionally. He'll provide what we need spiritually. He has provided his son. He provides us his righteousness. And he provides us with salvation. What good news that is. Our sermon text today is Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. If you would and are able, please stand now out of respect for God's holy and inspired word as I read to you this text, Amos 9, verses 11 through 15. This is the inspired word of God. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and for practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. As you are, let's pray once more. Our Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have been with us throughout this study of the book of Amos. Uh, if we are being honest, we must admit it is a, a hard study. Hard not just because we need to figure out what exactly you're saying, but, but perhaps even more hard because we realize what you're saying. Hard because we are convicted of our sin. Hard because we, we see the judgment that we deserve. Hard because of your righteousness. But today we, we have this note at the end. This note of your graciousness. This note that brings us joy. This note that encourages us. May that be true of all who are here today. We ask it in the name of Christ Jesus your Lord. Amen. Well, we've been through eight and a half chapters of gloom and doom. Judgment coming from God. Judgment that is imminent. Judgment that is comprehensive. Judgment that is overwhelming. And throughout those eight and a half chapters, there's been this phrase that is repeated a number of times. That phrase is, in that day. And when Amos speaks of that day, he is speaking of the day of judgment, where God will, will look down in judgment upon the people who have failed to walk with him as they should, who have failed to trust in his holiness, but have have tried to create their own religious ways, have done their own thing, been their own God. And 
he will judge them severely. We see that phrase again here in verse 11, don't we? At the very beginning of it, that phrase, in that day. Except here, it's, it's different in what it means. It's different in what it's talking about. It is that same day, but, but it's not talking about that aspect of judgment and condemnation here. Rather, it's talking about the gracious provision of salvation in the face of that judgment for those who belong to the Lord. And we, as those who belong to the Lord, again, find great comfort in that here today. It is, it is an abrupt transition that takes place. One commentator put it this way. He said the transi transition between verse 10 and verse 11 in chapter 9 of Amos is the most abrupt and surprising in all of the Old Testament, right? There's, there's all these judgments and condemnations that are coming, and, and then all of a sudden, good news. Especially good for us, because if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that those judgments and those condemnations were not just for those people way back then. Nor are they even just for the people in our day who are not part of the church, right? But they rightly should be ours as well because we are every bit as much sinners as anyone else who has ever walked the earth. We are every bit as much, every bit as much to be condemned because of that. But while we deserve God's righteous judgment, even so there is hope. Hope proclaimed in this verse here and so uh, we, we we spoke as uh, just a couple minutes ago we spoke of Ian's name as being being about God's graciousness the Lord's graciousness to us and that is the key to this this passage it's in his grace that he provides certain things for us that we would not otherwise have the first thing he provides is a kingdom renewed that's your first point in your notes if you are following along a kingdom renewed in that day i will raise up the booth of david that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old the booth here is actually in some verses referred to as a shelter or a tent the idea is this this is a place to dwell it's his dwelling place his home we could call it right the the house of david perhaps we could say it, not just in the sense though here of, of a structure, because we know that David didn't actually live just in a tent. He lived in a palace, right? But, but it's talking about the house of David in the same sense that, right, those in England speak of the house of Windsor, right? This idea that, that this house of, of them is the king's kingship, right? And, and it's saying here essentially that, that the kingship of David that has, has fallen and, and, and is broken will be rebuilt it will be raised and god will do this and and we see this first in the fact that there will be this king a king that's your first sub point under number one in the rebuilding of the kingdom there there will be a king right just as there was with david this great king that god provided to his people there will one day be a king who will come in david's line in david's house who will be the king of god's people once again he will be a a a good and great king we in america don't really think too highly of kings do we we fought uh fought a war to get rid of a king right so that we could live without a king uh we we wanted to have our 
our own representatives and we want to have our own form of government. We don't need a king. But part of the reason that we felt that way was because the king wasn't a king as a king should be, right? A king should be about uh, ruling, yes, but, but his rule shouldn't just be about uh, putting money in his pockets and, and gaining things for him. His rule should be about uh, uh, fighting for his people, you know, doing battle on their behalf, protecting them, guarding them, providing for them, loving them, and, and even serving them, taking care of them. That is what a king would do. Kings are to be heroic in this sense, right? And so now that the idea that a king is going to be raised up in the line of David is, is wonderful news for those people who are Old Testament uh, members of the nation of Israel here. They are, they are looking forward to this messianic ruler, this, this king who will come and be their champion. They've been long looking for him already, and they will be looking for him beyond here. We share in that desire. We long for our king to return. You know, not, not everyone might realize that. There might be many, even some in our midst here today, but certainly those in the world around us that don't realize that is what they are longing for. But there is within us this longing for the king to return. We, we want the king to return because that is how we are created to live. We are created to live with that king being the one who, who takes care of us and provides for us and, and loves us and and is the one who, who is our ultimate champion, right? You see it in our popular culture even, right? Think, think of, I mean, I'm going back a few years here, but, but think of the Star Wars movies, right? Uh, you know, there, there's this trilogy, right? The first one was, was Star Wars, you know, the, you, know, the, you know, you had the original movie, but then they came out with this one called The Empire Strikes Back, right? And... And then there was a third one. What was it? The return of the Jedi, right? There's this coming back, this returning of, of someone who's going to bring deliverance from the evil of the world, as it were, that surrounded them. Or, or a more classical example might even be from, from Tolkien's classic trilogy, right? The, the Lord of the Rings, right? He, he, he has the third book is what? The return of the king. Right? And, and he's borrowing there from this sense of, of this longing that we have for a king to return and set things to rights. It's something that, that is in each of our hearts, right? And, and there's a sense in which, which that which is broken down and that which is, is, is not which, which it looks like it, it should be as a king, right, needs to return it and resume its glory, re re regain its glory. Right, Tolkien, in that, in that third book, The Return of the King, that, uh, well, actually, it's in the first book, but, but points forward to that third book. Um, he writes th this poem in there. It says, All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes of fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. There's this hungering for a king that we do not see, a king that maybe is, is veiled to us by, by supposed weakness or brokenness or, or, or just 
a, a lack of esteemable glory. Right? We, we long for it and hunger for it. And, and we remember that, that King David was the same way, right? When God gave the people King David, right? The prophet came and, and looked at all of the sons and none of them were the right one who God had appointed to be the king of God's people. Right? Big, strong, handsome, great. They say, well, well, there is one more, right? He's, he's the runt of the litter. He's, he's out in the field, you know, with the sheep. Go get him. Yes, that's the one, David. Right? He was the last one they would have chosen. Or, or even more so, of course, is the example of King Jesus. Right? What does Isaiah tell us in Isaiah 53? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Right? And then when Jesus took on human flesh, he, he lived this very, very humble life, this very ordinary life. He, he did not come in pomp and circumstance and glory and have trumpets blowing everywhere he went and on a majestic white steed. No, even as he came into Jerusalem in his final week, right, he rode in on that, that donkey, a humble donkey. He is the king that we're waiting for. Right, but the kingdom's not just about the king, right? It's certainly the primary point, but, but if you have a king and he's just by himself, and there's nobody else, then that's not really a kingdom, is it? Right? A kingdom necessarily has to have subjects, right? So that's the, the second part is, is there's a people, right? A kingdom renewed, that means there's a king that's going to come, but there's also going to be a people that serve that king, that are under that king, right? A people who will follow the king, who will do his will, who will live for his glory, right? That's hard for us, again, because, you know, as Americans, we are, we are individualists. We believe in liberty to do what we want to do. We kind of set our own pattern. We, we like to live our life as we want to live it. I am the captain of my own fate, right? I can do what I want to do, and nobody can tell me. But, but life isn't meant to be lived all about me, right? That, that ultimately is a disappointing and a, a broken way to live life. We, we are best off living life for others, and specifically in this case, for one other, that is the Lord, right? The idea is we get the benefit of living as his children, as living under his authority, as living as his subjects. We get all the benefits that shower down from it, but he gets the glory. He gets the glory. He gets the praise. He gets the honor. And that is the way we should live our lives in this kingdom renewed. The second point there, you see, first, a kingdom renewed. Point two, a cartography redrawn. Now, I'll admit, I use the word cartography there just to kind of have that alliteration, right? The kingdom, a cartography. Uh, you'll see here we're going to talk about a curse in just a minute, right? But, but when I talk about a cartography, uh, what cartography is, it's the, the science or practice of drawing maps, right? And so, so... What we could say is, you know, a map redrawn, you know, would be, would be kind of the same, but that doesn't work alliteratively, so we go with a cartography redrawn. Uh, recently, our, our son, Jack, took a semester to study abroad in Europe. Interesting thing is true, the Europe that he was in was a very different Europe than the Europe that existed when I was a young boy, 
You say, what do you mean by a very different Europe? Well, the countries are all different. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. Have you looked at a map, right? You know, you consider that, that when I was growing up, the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia were two countries, right? But today, those areas that those had now comprise over 20 countries, right? Or, or you think of how there was this country called Czechoslovakia, right? It was one country, but now it's two countries, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Or back in the day, you remember when Germany was actually two countries, right? East Germany, West Germany. But now it's just Germany, right? The, the maps have all been redrawn. The lines between nations are different than they used to be. There's a cartography that has changed. Verse 12 says that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. You see, what's happening here is there is a new national identity that is being given to certain people. Just as, as back in circa 1990, 91 or so, there were countries where people went to bed one day and they lived in one country, and the next night when they went to bed, they lived in a different country, and they hadn't moved in between, right? So it is that there is a national identity that is being changed. That's the first sub-point under a cartography redrawn, a new national identity. What I mean by that is, is what we see here, that the, the people of Israel had thought about the kingdom merely in terms of, of two things, right? Their genetic descendancy and their geographic borders. They thought that, that they were Israel, they were the people of God because they were descendants of Abraham and they, they lived within that land that God had given to Abraham. They didn't realize what the Apostle Paul would say many generations later when he wrote to the churches in Galatia. He was talking about their identity within the people of God and how it had been established. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Right? He says that the Galatians to whom he was writing on that day were actually sons of Abraham, even though they were Gentiles, even though they were not genetically descended, even though they, they were not actually what we might consider to be children of Abraham, it turns out that they were sons of Abraham, not because of their, their ge genealogical lineage, but because they believed, because they had faith, because they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was what established them as children of Abraham. Paul goes on in Galatians 3 there to say, so that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, that was always the idea, to have this, this heavenly kingdom that, that would have citizens from all kinds of nations being brought into this one kingdom, the borders being redrawn, no longer by the by the lines between nations, but rather, according to this line, do you trust in the Lord? 
Do you have faith? Do you trust that you cannot save yourself? Do you believe that Christ Jesus has died for you? Do you believe that his blood is enough to cover your sins, to wash you clean from any impurity you might have, and to make you pure and spotless before the Lord God, the righteous judge? Do you trust in him alone? That is what determines, right? So, so no longer do the borders of God's kingdom cut between nations on a map. Rather, they weave through the hearts and minds of each man, woman, and child. And we must come to a point where we trust in him, right? We see Edom mentioned in this verse. Remember back in chapter one, Edom was mentioned, right? It's the nation south of Israel, it, uh, descended from Esau, right? And, and from Esau, we see that these, this nation descended and, and it actually uh, is judged in Amos 1 for, for having, having received Is, Israelite slaves from Philistia. And, and it was really south of Judah and, and, and kind of acting as an enemy of the state, as it were. Right? But... God says here, even this nation of Edom that I have judged in chapter 1, there will be a remnant from there. And all the nations that are called by my name, that's what Acts 15 we looked at before, right? That idea that you don't need to be within the Jewish nation, within the Israel, to be part of Israel. You have to trust in the Lord. The kingdom of God expands beyond those national boundaries. Revelation 5 speaks of that day where they're gathered around the throne of God, singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth and it's not just important to see this for for someday in the future right we we must live this day in light of that day right that's what peter talks about in first peter 2 he speaks not of a geopolitical entity but he talks about talks to the church and he says this you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we, we as those who were not part of his people have been brought in so that we might proclaim his excellencies, right? It's not a matter of just being saved so that we can be comfortable and happy and, and just sit there and be, be fat and happy and not have to worry about anything. No, it's so that we can proclaim his excellencies. We, can, we receive his grace so that we can proclaim his grace. We're to be conduits of his grace in that way, right? So, so he has loved us and showered us with mercy. We must, if that is true, then in turn love others and shower them with mercy, right? From the start has been the responsibility we have to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. If we have been loved by him and we do love him in return, we must love our neighbor as well, right? So when you see your neighbor hurting, 
That means we must love them and we must care for them. When we see our neighbor in need, we must help provide for them. When we see our neighbors being treated poorly and wrongly, we must stand up for them. This is not something that is opposite the gospel. This is not something that is outside of the gospel. This is the necessary ramification of the gospel. We have been saved by grace through faith, not by anything we have done, but we have been saved unto good works that God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Right? So, so we have a new freedom from the law, and that's your next point under that cartography redrawn. There's not the same national laws we used to have, right? You don't have all the, all the laws that were the civil laws or the ceremonial laws that existed within Israel, right? We talked about circumcision, no longer required among God's people. But the moral law still exists. We still must love God and love neighbor. But the curse of the law has been taken upon Christ Jesus. He took it upon himself, right? right? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Christ Jesus became that curse for us as he hung on the cross. And God poured out his judgment upon him on that day. And the Son of God became a curse for us so that we who were cursed might become sons of God. Point three, a curse reversed. This is the good news, right? There is this curse. It's rightly deserved, but it's been reversed. When we think about curses, perhaps our thoughts go to, go to silly, uh, just kind of uh, supposedly magical bad luck spells, right? You know, somebody puts a curse. They, they put a curse on me, right? There's the, the curse of the Bambino, right? Babe Ruth, the Red Sox sold him to the Yankees, and then for a century after, you know, there was this curse on them because of that, or... Or, or some other silly curse like that, right? But that's not the kind of curse we're talking about here. We need to remember that, that the Bible speaks in terms of covenant, covenantal language. And covenantal language always includes covenant curses and covenant blessings, right? We, we might think of the idea of a covenant curse as being like uh, a covenant penalty, perhaps, right? These covenants are, are legally binding agreements. And so if we had a, a, a legal agreement, right? You agreed, I'm going to buy this house, right? And I'm going to pay back the bank this much every month, so forth and so on, right? You have to sign a whole bunch of papers about that, right? These legal stipulations throughout it. And there's things that say stuff like this. I'm going to paraphrase. If you don't pay us back the money you owe, we're going to take away your house, Right? Things like that. That is a covenant curse, essentially. Right? If you do not live up to the terms of the agreement, here is what's going to happen to you. Right? And so Amos comes here throughout these first eight and a half chapters, essentially as a lawyer who is prosecuting God's case against the people. He's reminding them of the covenant obligations and of the covenant obligations that they have failed to keep and of the covenant curses that come on account of it, Amos 4, I give you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. I withheld rain from you, right? He says basically part of the covenant curse is, is there will be a famine and there will be a drought. You will not have the food and the drink, the water you need as a result of your sin. But the curse here in this final chapter is reversed, right? And so here's your first sub-point under that famine and drought 
are turned to abundance. See here in verse 15, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. You see first off the, that, that idea of the, the plowman and the reaper, right? They wouldn't work at the same time. First you would plow the ground, then you plant it, and then many months later you would normally reap the crop. But what he's saying here is, is what will happen is, is the crop will be so abundant and so overflowing, it'll be as if you plant it and it pops up and it's there. And, and, and before, you can, before you can plant more, it's already there and, and, and the reaper overtakes the one who is plowing the ground. That's the idea. It's, it's just going to be so wildly abundant that you won't be able to keep up with it. It'll be a, a miraculous, wonderful, incredible thing, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, he says. All the hills shall flow with it. And, and the destroyed cities will be rebuilt, he says. Right? That's the next point under point three. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. I don't know if you've noticed, but God is really into the idea of redeeming things. That is something he really likes to do, right? Those words we read at the very beginning of the worship service today in Revelation 21, remember those final things? He says, behold, I am making all things new. It's important to note, he does not say, behold, I'm making all new things. No, he's taken what we have marred, what we have broken, what we have ruined, and he is making those things new. He is making it right. He is making it pure. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. This is common prophetic language. Joel chapter 3, we don't have time to go there, but it speaks in the same way, talking about freely flowing wine as a messianic sign, a sign of the of the messianic rule being spread throughout the world. This idea of freely flowing wine, it's a, a sign of messianic blessing. That's why Jesus' first miracle we read in the scripture is what? It's when he goes to the wedding at Cana, John 2, and, and he turns water into wine, right? That's not just Jesus saying, hey, I think this party needs a little bit more. Let's get it going, right? No, he's saying, saying this is a sign. This is something to show you who I am. I am the Messiah, the King who you have long awaited, and I am ushering in this messianic age of great blessing and abundance and wonder, and it will be a time of rebuilding and glory, and it will all be for you, the people of God. He says they will plant vineyards. Do you see what it says here about God? Essentially says, I will plant them. I will plant them in their land, he says, right? This is the third point under a curse reverse. The exile has ended, right? If there's one thing that's true about the people of God, it is they are people of exile, right? Yeah, you know, exiled, uh, carried off into Assyria, right? That's coming soon to the people of God, as Amos is speaking, right? The people of Judah will be carried off to Babylon a couple centuries later. The most foundational story in the history of, of, of the people of God is probably in the Exodus, right? You know, where they were carried off. They're, they're enslaved in Egypt. They finally have the opportunity to return. The Bible goes way back. You know, we go back to, to Genesis 3, right? What happens to Adam? He sins. He falls. And he is, he is exiled from the garden. 
But here we see what is going to happen. The exile will be ended. The people will be brought home. God will plant them there on their land. Right? He's not just going to give them any land. He's going to give them their land, the land that they were created for, the land that they were made for, the land that was made for them. It is their land. I'll plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted. What a glorious note this is, that they will never be uprooted. It is forever. That's the final fourth point there. This is, this is a forever thing, right? It's not, I'll put you there, and after a while, it's going to happen all over again. No, he says this will be a permanent thing. Forever you will be there. Ever since the garden, we've been wanting to go home. Right? We've been wanting to return to the garden. That's what God has planned for us, to go back to the garden. You see, that, that whole idea of what's happening here is, is his new creation is that old creation. But it's where the old creation was going to go had it not been impacted by sin. He is, he is taking us back to the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Eden on steroids, as it were. The Garden of Eden where it would have gone had it not been impacted on, by sin. Had Adam, had Adam gardened the garden as he should have and spread it throughout all of the creation, Right? That is what he is promising to do. That is what he is proclaiming will happen. And we will be with him. That will be the most glorious thing, right? Remember last chapter, chapter 8, when Amos talked about that day coming of a famine of hearing the words of God. We will never experience that famine again. But he will be with us and we will be with him. He will be our God and we will be his people. That will be the most glorious thing of all. So in closing, I just have to say this. This is a hard world to live in sometimes. It's certainly true, as we mentioned before. It's a hard world. It can be a painful world, and it seems to obscure God's glory at times. But what this passage today promises us is that though for now the glory of God might be obscured from our eyes, though we might not have the eyes to see it, though there might be a veil covering them so that they cannot behold his glory as it is, we will one day behold it. It is there, and it shall be ours to see. Right? It's not saying that our pain today isn't real. It's not saying our pain today doesn't matter. It's not saying our pain has no effect on us. No, but what it's saying is that no matter how real your pain is, no matter how much it hurts and impacts you, the glory that you behold is greater still. It is more glorious still. And Paul even says in Romans 8 that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Right? Or Jim Boyce put it this way. He said, we may not completely understand the past, and we certainly do not understand the future, but we see enough to marvel at the grace of our God and respond to him. And so let us be people who do that. Let us marvel at God's grace. Let us respond to him. And let us even now in the midst of our sorrow and pain in this world, as we wait for Christ Jesus to return and set all things right, know that all is well with our souls.
pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your words of promise. Thank you that even here in the midst of a broken and fallen world, a world where we see horrific things all too frequently, a world where, where Satan seems to have all power, where it seems that all we can do is weep. Thank you for your promise that there is one more thing we can do, and that is trust in you. We can trust in you that you, you will come again. We can trust in you that you will make all things right. And we can trust in you that even as we wait for that day, you work in and through us to push back the effects of the fall even now. Lord, may it be so that we truly trust in you to those ends. Be with us now in Jesus' name.